Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Hello, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Brighton Rock Podcast, the podcast about the beautiful club within the beautiful game. And with me uh, once again is Andy Bass joining back with us. Hello, Andy. Hello, Russ. Good to be back. Excellent. There is no Peter, my co-host today. He's out drinking after work. Outrageous behaviour. <laughs> but we do have a special guest, that is to say a man making his debut on the podcast. Many people who are podcast listeners uh, for other Albion pods will know who this is already. Um, is a familiar face as a sponsor for the Albion Raw. It is Mr. Phil Shelley from oldfootballshirts.com. Hello, Phil. Hello, Russ. How are you? Good to meet you. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've met before, haven't we? We've met wording, yes. Yes, indeed. And I believe drunkenly in the Wheat Chief in uh, London Bridge on one or two occasions, I'm post charting yeah. away, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. You um, remember it, you weren't there. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Um, well, welcome to the show. Your first time on here. So we'll, we'll start with you. We've mentioned oldfootballshirts.com. We'll get on to that in a moment. But um, tell us about you as an Albion fan. What, what's your backstory? Well, I lived uh, overseas for most of my formative years till I was about 10 years old when I came to boarding school in Sussex. Mm. Um, and at that time, I, I, I have to admit it, I had nailed my colours to the, 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 the non-coloured master of Leeds United Football Club because mm. living overseas at the time when they were the big clubs, my parents bought me a white football shirt to wear at school, playing football at school. So I was a Leeds fan. Um, when I came to school in Sussex, a certain Eric Steele came to do an assembly talk at my school. And uh, I genuinely had to ask the question, who's he? He plays for Brighton. What's Brighton? <laughs> I was told well, Brighton's a local football team and they're going to get promoted to the first division. I thought, in that case, I'll be a Brighton fan. So since about 1977, possibly early 78, I've been a Brighton fan. Fantastic. And uh, yeah, I did everything. I did all the war years. I went to my first game against Norwich. We lost 3 1 in 1979 or so, thereabouts. Um, you know, did uh, did um, did a lot of the 
my remaining time at boarding school went as often as I could. Um, met my my now wife um, in '86. Uh, Turns out she was also a Brighton fan, so now I can't get rid of her. I have to take her everywhere. Um, <laughs> so we've been going following Brighton ever since. We did all the war years. We lay down in the road. We invaded the pitch. We left the ground. We broke into the ground. We wrote letters. And then, of course, came along with Dean. And uh, once we moved to with Dean, all of a sudden, our social um, uh, aspect opened up of football. Met the likes of Mr. Andy Bass, who's uh, at the other end of the line there. Met a whole bunch of people. I got involved with that massive flag we had, the, the, the REMF flag. Oh. I got involved with helping out with that. Um, and, yeah, made a lot of very, very good friends uh, as Albion supporters, really, from 99 onwards. Brilliant. That's a great story. So you've been a fan for roughly the same amount of time as me, though, I think. Yeah. I'm 79, 80 vintage. Um, and, yeah, you've been, you say you've been through the – you paid your dues, so to speak, as an Albion fan. You know, Absolutely. people who are young, but don't blame them for not having to do that. But for anyone of a certain age, it's good to know you've, um, you know, you've yeah. been there. You've felt the pain. Yeah, <laughs> felt the pain. Uh, wasn't sure what I was getting into when I binned off Leeds United. But, you know, I don't regret it for one minute. I didn't even know where Leeds was. Literally, I did that. <laughs> Um, so at least I knew that Brighton was near to where I was at school. So. Yeah. Where, where was your family from originally? Because you said you were overseas, but where were they from? Father's in the military, so actually from Surrey. Oh, okay. Uh, in the Royal Air Force, so we lived in Holland, Germany, France, Cyprus. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, that was where I grew up in those countries. So, you know, the only football I got was from Shoot magazine and uh, reading the back page of the newspaper on a Sunday, always a Monday, okay. cause always a day late. Oh, yes, of course, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a classic. Brilliant. Um, pretty good going. Um, favourite memories and um, kind of favourite players through the ages, either whether the ones you consider the best or the ones you just like the most? Well, John Byrne was, I've always said John Byrne's my favourite Brighton player. Um, I just enjoyed watching him play for Brighton, I guess at a time when we desperately needed some flair and perhaps just a, just he ticked the boxes for that. I know I have to say, I did enjoy his Barnet as well. So, you know, uh, <laughs> So, yeah, J- JB was a, was a firm favourite. Um, great memories. Um, Dean Wilkins free kick to get us in the playoffs. Um, the Millennium Stadium, what a day. Just just so fantastic to see after everything we've been through to, to have got there. Um, sadly, promotion to the Premier League wasn't the greatest day for me because my dad had a stroke the same day. So it kind of took a, the big sting out of the celebration of that. But... Mm. I've enjoyed thoroughly beating United, beating City, beating Arsenal, beating Spurs. <laughs> I've loved doing all that in the Premier League. That's quite good when you when you just say it all out in a row, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been great because I can remember us playing Liverpool and Chelsea and City and Arsenal in, in sort of 79, 80, in that, in that time. And it didn't seem quite as special then as it does now. And I think because of, you know, sitting at... Um, Priestfield with 1,300 or 1,400 other Brighton supporters watching us lose yet again to somebody like Chesterfield or Peterborough. You know, that, seeing Brighton go and beat Arsenal, beat Spurs, beat United twice, three times, yeah, you know, it's, just, it's just been great. So I suppose the memories sort of, you know, things like the Southampton game on the day of 9-11, I mean, that was a summit you're never going to forget. I, I just thought that was the bizarrest thing ever being in the stadium that day. 
Yeah, oh, for me too. Actually, that was weird, that one, because I was already up in London by those days, and I picked, it was back before congestion charge, believe it or not, um, because I picked the missus up from her work in central London um, at 2 o'clock, uh, which is 9 o'clock in the morning US time, or New York time, and um, yeah, it was just breaking on the news. I had the radio on, and we spent the two hours driving down to the game with team, listening to the radio, which was quite old school in one sense it was also terrifying because lots of information was getting kind of fragmented and distorted and it sounded like there was one more plane in the air than there was in terms of the terrorists um all sorts of stuff it was almost like a little bit like the war of the worlds thing but it was real it was mad it was a really surreal experience and then as, was, as you said the game it, as well and it remains a memory because it was just the weirdest game the atmosphere was like yeah. nothing you've ever seen you know um, and of course, what came after it with the Robert Eaton Memorial Fund, uh, whilst I'm not exactly involved in it, I play an active role in helping out where I can and, and, and I've done a number of things to, to help them raise money. And as I said, got involved with transporting that gigantic flag about the place and, <laughs> um, you know, hoiking it up over the, the South Stand at with Dean and stuff like that. Um, yes, it's, it's, there's there's a lot of memories. You know, you know, drawing three all with Liverpool at the Goldstone Ground in the pouring rain. Yeah, Bands United again. Things you, you're never going to forget. So many memories. Um, the the best ones. Yeah, I, I I'm going to say the first game against Doncaster was was, was immense. Um, I think uh, beating Manchester United. You know, twice in twice in the matter of three or four games or whatever it was when we did them start and beginning. It's just great fun, you know, and and also, I think just also being part of the fraternity, really, that from the terrible days when I didn't know anybody at at Goldstone, I didn't know anybody at Priestwood, new faces, you know, nod and wave, hi, how you doing? But then with being, you know, getting to know lots of people and, of course, all the the work we did as fans to to get us to, to, to... the stadium being built and, and moving in there. So. Yeah, I think, Andy, no doubt you could agree with that as well. The with Dean, definitely, there was something about that which um, did seem cosier, didn't it? It did seem to make more of a genuine sort of localised community feel and localised in terms of the fan base within within itself. Um, people seem to to meet more people, know each other more in more uh, numbers. Didn't they? I think it, it was the case for me as well. I lost touch with my old Goldstone uh, guys you know from way back beforehand and um yeah it was forging new friendships i think in those days would you yeah. go along with that oh absolutely because that was that was really when i started going to watch watch the albion my first sort of my first season there was that was the second season at, at the goal at, at, uh, at the with dean i didn't didn't go in the first the first year i couldn't really get tickets it sold out um and then i started I started just going to like the odd game and then started buying tickets and then I got a half season ticket. Um, yeah, like, you know, because I was, you know, I was a, a DFL, I was down from London and um, <laughs> didn't know anybody. Then got to meet meet people at, at the football, met them in the, you know, and there's meet people in the sportsman and you just get introduced from one person to another and suddenly like your, your circle grows and got back into going to football every, at least at least every other week. Um, if not every week, and then um, and then with like the Robert E Memorial flag, got involved with more people to help fill out. That's where I met Phil and Lou, as we 
because we were all in there and we, we all seemed to like Motorhead. So it was like another thing to talk about other than the football. So um, it was it was brilliant. With Dean was with Dean was great. With Dean was brilliant, and um, and I think everybody who was there will really yeah will really look back with fondness. And what a different world! What a different world it was. Um, you think that you know we get thirty thousand now, thirty one, thirty two thousand. But basically, for the most of our tenure at Whitdean, we it would be like five to six thousand, and then like we were getting like seven, eight towards the end. But what a bunch of people! It's still the same people that I see, and because of the way they sold the, the season tickets at, with, at, 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 at the Amex, like the, you know, doing it in order of like you know how long you've had your season ticket and all this sort of stuff. It's just like it's still the same people that are, sit around us. Yeah, certainly sit around me at the West End Upper. It's like it's all, you know, it's all, uh, it's all the old, it's all the old with Dean lot there. Um, and yeah, absolutely, it was happy days. And um, and the football for the most part was, you know, we were successful. You know, we, you know, we, you know, we won titles, we won playoff finals, we had a couple of relegations chucked in, but for the most part, it was fighting at the top of the table. Or trying to or trying to get promoted or being involved in a playoff fight, so there was always excitement um, there. I just think, you know, the, the players that were there. When you think of the likes, of, you know, obviously Zamora is the big one, but you you got you got to look back at people like Gary Hart, Kerry Mayo, Richard Carpenter, you know, Danny Cullett, Paul Watson, Paul Brooker, you know, Michelle Kuypers, just you know, Adam Virgo, whatever happened to him. Um, you know, yeah, and then you know your your Jake Robinsons and Alex Ravels, and yeah, now we're in the Premier League. We're a world away from 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 these players, but they're always players that are going to have a a place in your heart as an Albion fan. If if you were part of that with De Niro, it's bizarre now. So I know we are sort of rambling on about the old the old days again, but the sort of new old days. Uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, there'll be people in their twenties at, at, at the Amex that will not have been at not have been at with Dean or won't really remember it. So that, I mean, they they have a different experience than the Albion to us, which I think is quite interesting. And uh, you know, they're very fortunate to be watching us at this level. But I think we were fortunate to be watching what was a golden age for the Albion because we had no money and yet we still managed to get on-field success whilst there was so boss. It was 11 years of struggle off the pitch. It was mm-hmm. unrelenting. It never stopped. You were campaigning for this, that and the other every single season. There wasn't a year that there wasn't some form of activism re- required and pretty much everybody stepped, stepped up to the plate and joined in. And I think that's why there is such a bond between people that, that participated in, in that in that in that era of the club, and you know, and obviously people that, that couldn't get into it because it was, you know, because it invariably would be sold out towards, particularly towards the end, um, who were still supporting the album, were still getting involved, even though they couldn't, mm. even though they couldn't come to the matches. Um, Good so, times, yeah, happy time. Good times to the away days as well, really. Because the away felt- days are brilliant. I mean, we were we were reminiscing about some. Uh, actually, we were bizarrely reminiscing about Jake Forsakaski's 30-yard screamer at Doncaster just the other day. 
<laughs> W2 were in Belgium. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, a couple of points you made there. I mean, the, the new old days, um, so to speak, I think is a good way of putting it because it is still very fresh in the memory, isn't it, with Dean and, and what was going on around that time and all the protests and all the um, applications of flowers and postcards and letters and all the other stuff that we're involved with um, sending. Um, but it is, the time is going very quickly. We've been at, at Amex more than 11, just over 11 years now. And there is a generation, well, there's a generation of players who might still be around or just retire in the Dean Coxes and Jake Robinsons of this world. I mean, uh, Worthing, Dean Cox has just, um, has just put his, hung his boots up, hasn't he, I think. Yeah. And Jake Robinson's got an injury. He might end up doing the same. It's that generation of players are slowly filtering out. I think once they've all retired, whether they're at the Albion or not, that, that generation of players, that's when we really feel like it probably is the actual old, old days. <laughs> at yeah. some point, we'll have to acknowledge that is becoming the old well, some of our older friends who remember so clearly the the first time in in Division One uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, they remember it so clearly. And those players, whereas we were very young then, hmm. um, and they still talk about the likes of Rollo and Brian Horton and Peter Ward, of course, and all those players. And you know, they're only a little bit older than us. And of course, now we're doing the same talking about the people <laughs> with Dean and, and those first few people at, at the Amex and, and yeah. how went. And you know, hopefully I'll live to be 70 or 80 and I'll be telling people in their 40s and 50s how great it was when we had people like Mark Cucarello. <laughs> yeah it's the consciousness of not being patronizing and then kind of also being kind of not trying to sound too fuddy-duddy when you start reminiscing because then the realization kicks in doesn't it oh i'm actually getting that old (laughs) that's coming that's coming but yeah i mean it's uh it's been a fantastic but very whirlwindy um, time hasn't it really being an albion fan um you mentioned Worthing um, earlier on, and I think uh, uh, where I met you before, and also your uh, your lovely uh, wife Lou, um, yeah, also follows uh, Worthing as well. Um, you get along to a few of those games, as does Andy as well. Um, have you got along this season? Because we we cover a little. Yeah, bit. Yeah, been a few times. Went to the first game against Dover. Been to been to a few since. Yeah. Um, was going to go to Concord Rangers today, but I knew I had to get back to speak to you guys. You see, so oh. I'm going to and watch Denning <laughs> play after we're done. Because I also watched Stenning play in the in the Sussex Combination League. But yeah, oh. we've done both a few times. Hmm. Um, they're looking good. Fourth, third in the league. Yeah, unbeaten. Uh, better away from home than at home, ironically. But they're unbeaten. Um, I went to the game on Saturday at Hemel Hempstead. Um, oh. First visit there, 147th ground picked off. Um, well nice, neat little ground, actually. Friendly people. They've got uh, their nickname, the Tudors. And they had their mascot, who is a bloke walking around in a Henry VIII outfit. <laughs> Quite yeah. He's also leader of what we might describe as their ultras. Um, so he kind of just goes into the uh, the home end and starts leading all the songs. Okay, fair enough. Um, yeah. Bit surreal, no. but it's nice ground, friendly ground. Um, I think the, the way that the championship developed with when Sky got so involved, and now the way that the that Sky BT and the world is so involved with the Premier League, it just frees up those Saturday three o'clocks, doesn't it? Yeah, and the Tuesday, and the Tuesday seven forty fives as well. You know. Um, so yeah, you can you can make the most of it really, and, and I certainly would never go on. I don't think I would ever go and watch Worthing play instead of Brighton. Hmm. Um, if I, I wouldn't, I never would. You know, my season ticket at Brighton costs far too much money to waste it. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly, getting along to watch Worthing play frequently now is great because you can do it. 
Yeah, it would. Really, getting a season ticket there as well, you know, just to save a couple of quid. But, uh, yeah, well, probably could do. Sponsoring yeah. a player at Worthing this season because I can't afford to sponsor a player at Brighton anymore. So, you know. All right, okay. Who are you sponsoring? Dev Van Splat. Oh, Dev yeah. Van yeah. Van I've not met him. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, next time I'm down there, I'm getting a photo taken for the programme and everything with him. I've, I've, I've never seen him even play. So. <laughs> but um, it, it helps to put a couple of quid in their coffers, doesn't it? Especially yeah. now that they're having to, yeah, they're, they've phoned up quite well there. So. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, but yeah, so they're doing very well, as you said. You can get to games. This is the beauty of it. A lot of people falling out of love with the the whole kind of corporate and screwed around by TV companies nature of the Premier League. But you can kind of have the best of both worlds if you can tolerate um, the former. You can have the latter, which is the non-league as well, as, as you said, and get to get to games, which is great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they should have won on Saturday, by the way. It's, um, they were dominating the match. Um, virtually their only attack, Hemel got a penalty, which was a penalty, and then uh, and then they, they took all of the second half to claw it back to one all. But there we go. But still, I think they're still third in the table. So, you know, something almost exactly in common with the Albion, who are still sitting in fourth. We've been there a couple of weeks now, haven't we, without doing anything? Which... <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> we'll get on to talking about um, the Albion again uh, in the current times uh, in a little bit more detail. Just quickly ask you before I forget, Phil, whereabouts are you, uh, are you in the Albion? Uh, the grounds on match days. You've got a season ticket. So you, are you 1901? I am. I'm on the West Stand middle, just just on the edge of the centre circle on the West Stand middle. Oh, OK. Too far away for us to throw our pies and tea at you, I'm afraid. You, the north end uh, of the stuff. You could, you could if you were horrible. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so, yeah, yeah cracking, cracking views of the ground. We decided to treat ourselves when, when they announced it right back at the beginning. And... Uh, you know, it's uh, yeah. At, at the moment, I'm still in, still enjoying it. So it's been it's been a little fractious the way they've done it. But at the end of the day, there's two and a half, three thousand fans going in there, chucking a nice big chunk into the coffers as well, isn't it? So I think, uh, it, yeah, I, I can just about afford it. Don't get me wrong, I'm not you know, rolling in it or anything like that. But I do enjoy it. I do like sitting in there, and uh, yeah, we shall we shall continue doing so. Good stuff. Um. Now, you're sitting in what looks like a very large cupboard. Um, people will probably picture the scene when we mentioned uh, your the football, fir- football shirts man. You can guess what the background is uh, behind Phil uh, as you're listening to this podcast. Um, it is, of course, a huge array of football shirts, quite a bit of blue and white stripage, I'm noticing, uh, but not, not exclusively that. Loads of Albion stuff and no doubt loads of other items as well. They're all hung up on hooks, usual on hangers, sorry, um, usual kind of setup. So can't make out the details, but um, you've got how many? Did you say six hundred there in that room? You think? That's that's six hundred and thirty shirts in total. Although I do have a few out on loan at the moment at a photo shoot, but that's only a handful. <laughs> Love it, brilliant. <laughs> Tell us about old football shirts then. How long has it been going? How did it come about? And how many have you got now as well? Because I think you're up to about nineteen hundred or something, aren't you? On the website, one hundred twenty-six thousand on the website. Oh, sorry. I meant. I meant. Sorry. I'm. I'm. I'm a, a zero out. Sorry. One hundred twenty-six thousand on the website. So yeah. Um. Uh, long. Long story short. Well, I won't make it too short because it'd be boring. Um. I got my first ever football shirt. Was uh, actual football shirt. It was a Nottingham Forest um, European Cup winners uh, shirt. The red one. The reason it was red. The school I was at. We had to wear red football shirts. So that was my first shirt. 
Second shirt was a California surf shirt because they were really cheap to buy in the back of Shoot magazine. <laughs> that was an admiral shirt. And uh, I suppose I love you. I'm actually colourblind. And I think the reason why I was fascinated by football shirts is they're really bright, bold colours. Well, most of them are until they come up with a ludicrous mauve hinted with green bits and I can't see for a toffee. But um, I kind of was just like the colours of football shirts. And I picked up a Holland one when I lived in Holland. Um, and then obviously started watching the Albion. My first Albion shirt I bought was the Santec shirt, the 94 Admiral Santec shirt. Um, and then I sort of, you know, picked up a couple. We moved to Priestfield and with Dean and picked up a couple. And then one day I discovered eBay and I bought a black and blue Inter striped shirt. And I thought, oh, I like this eBay. So I bought another one and another one. And I'm up to around about 300 Brighton shirts now. Um, I've pretty much got every Brighton shirt that's ever been available and also some that have never been available. Um, and I just started growing the collection, really. And then when I had them all, I thought, well, I want to buy the match versions of them, the players' versions of them. And then I said to my brother, who was a web designer, can you do me a website so I can put all my football shirts on the website? So he, at the time, lived in Cyprus. So we were sat around his pool drinking wine one evening. And he said, I've got a better idea. Why don't we make a website where anyone can post pictures of their football shirts onto it? So we could call it oldfootballshirts.com. So quick as a flash, this was in 2006. That's how long ago it was. Quick as a flash, he went on because he was a web designer, went on to his source or whatever, and purchased the domain name, oldfootballshirts.com. And then he started working on the idea. Um, and so the idea was that I could post all the photos of my football shirts on, but other people could post photos of theirs on. And that's probably when my sort of collection started growing into different countries and different teams. Um, I tend to sort of, whenever I'm abroad, I'll pick up shirts of, of wherever I am abroad. People send me shirts. People say, oh, do you want a what, so, so-and-so shirt? Yeah, go on then, what's your address? Oh, fine. And, and it sort of started growing. And I went around all the club forums when, when I started the website. and had a little preset thing saying, look, I'm not here to sell anything. Just got this website started. If you fancy looking at it and posting some images of your shirts, it'd be great to see it. And people did. And whenever they came to the Wifting Stadium, I had these business cards printed up and we would meet up with the Oppo fans and, and hand them out. And this all sort of developed and developed. And and then I started getting the emails. Oh, I've seen that Liverpool shirt on your website. How much is it? I've seen that Arsenal shirt on your that Real Madrid shirt. How much is it? What size is it? Hang on a minute. They're not for sale. So we did have to put a little bit of very focused advertising on the site um, to deflect all these people wanting to buy the shirts which is how I'm able to afford to sponsor a player at Worthing Football Club because we make a few quid from the adverts, you know. Okay. And I sponsored Brighton players from 2007 right through to 2016. So I was Bruno's sponsor for his time with us, uh, Matty Sparrow before then and, and a few others. Um, and so the website just kept growing and growing and growing. And I'll be honest with you, my brother's kind of fallen out of love with web design. So it's kind of a little bit static at the moment. So if anyone's listening who does a bit of web development and wants to talk to me, we've got some ideas to improve it. But it just keeps going. I mean, yesterday I sat down and validated another 35 submissions, and they're from all over the world. You know? um, and, uh, and this morning arrived in the post uh, the New York City Limited Edition home shirt. The, 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 they said, well, we'll send you that if you want to put it on your website. And I don't even talk about it. They just send me stuff. It's great. 
<laughs> um, I mean, it's quiet, isn't it? It's it escalates, doesn't it, this sort of thing? It, it does, and, um, and because my social media is reasonably active, the the, um, the Twitter is more active than the Facebook, um, and it, you just I get messages from people all over the world, uh, I get people posting images, and then I get people saying, like, in the background there, that's a Mark Omerod match shirt from 97-98 season. Now, yeah. I feel like shirt, I don't suppose you're interested, because I think you like Brighton shirts, don't you? Yeah, go on then. Uh, and and they just they just they pick up and and the, the interest is is tremendous in, in the website. And yeah, we're looking at about hundred and fifty thousand visitors a month to the website. Um, so it's not insignificant. Um, oh, pretty decent. And, you know, regularly get you know get some interesting messages from some people from time to time. Clubs, players, ex-players. All right. Yeah. Uh, Saw that Port Vale shirt on your website from 1977. I wore that shirt. You put me in touch with whoever owns it now. I want to buy it back, and it's some Port Vale you've never heard of, you know. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's great. It's, it is great how these things escalate. And I, we, I mean, Northern Europeans in general, I think, and no less, um, no least the English um, in particular, are a nation of collectors um, <laughs> on any given subject. Even within football, there's a number of subsections, isn't there? There's, you know, you've got Sabutio, you've got football stickers, you've got old football shirts you've got um programs obviously and various yeah. other bits of memorabilia i collect pin badges where from grounds i go to for example um people just pick up anything and it just when you once you split that across other subjects um outside of football you know you've got collections of all sorts going on and i see a pin badge coming to the foreground is that a dolphins badge yeah, yeah lovely <laughs> brilliant where's that one from 60s that'll be a Mid sixties, something like Dolph- that. Uh, Dolphins was um, se- early seventies, wasn't it? Oh yeah, um, yeah, that's right. It wasn't that long, was it? Uh, no, oh. only a couple of seasons. I've got a couple of Dolphins branded things, but uh, no, it wasn't. Uh, uh, we weren't the Dolphins for very long after. Um, is it Ron Chalice, the referee at Stamford Bridge? <laughs> yeah. Get old Ron. Yeah, um, and Seagulls. So. <laughs> Any anything in particular that really stands out from your either your collection that you've physically got or from what's on the website in terms of really unique, amazing, particularly cool natty designs or anything like that? What, what's what's your favourites? Well, my, my favourite Brighton shirt is the uh, shirt we wore at the Millennium Stadium. It was yeah. my favourite shirt before we wore it to the Millennium Stadium. I loved it then, and it still it still stands as my favourite Brighton shirt. Um, I've been fortunate. I've got um, I've got a Steve Gatting match worn shirt from the British Caledonian era. I've got a Malcolm Poskett shirt from '77. Yeah, so some of the old ones are really special. You know, uh, the red Adidas uh, Phoenix Brewery shirts with the horizontal oh, yeah. stripes. I've got a, a Phoenix Brewery and a Nobo version of, of that. Both match match versions. As I said, I try to look for match shirts now. Shirts like that, of course, were never made for sale, so they are only match shirts. Um, do you remember the Palookaville shirt? Yeah, I did have that, and it mysteriously disappeared, and I am blaming my wife. It's gone missing. I was really well, the Navy one, wasn't it, with the white? Yeah. Well, when, uh, when Araya made the prototypes for that shirt to present to Norman Cook, they showed him a Navy blue one and a burgundy and oh, yellow one. Yeah, uh, he chose the navy blue one. Well, I have the burgundy and yellow one, the only one ever to have been made. Uh, so that's quite nice having things like that. And I've got quite a few sort of uh, little odd odd ones in there. Um, I think having been in the past uh, a sponsor for the players, I always had a little bit of an into the club. So yeah, most of my shirts in the last 
15 years are all match shirts from various players. Um, I've literally just looked that shirt up on old football shirts. <laughs> the burgundy and yellow one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's there. It's there. And it is the only one that has ever existed. Um, so, so for me, favourites, you know, from the Brighton point of view, the old ones uh, are, are, of course, um, great to have because they're so rare, especially the players' shirts. They're so rare. Um, the old shirts generally are rare because they were made in fewer numbers. And, of course, what did your mum used to do with your shirt when you grew out of it and got too much mud on it, tossed it in the bin, you know. So there's fewer of them. Um, the modern shirts are just... They're, they're, you get such a variety with modern shirts now and, and, and there's so much proliferation. I buy them from Mexico. I buy them from Australia. I buy them from, you know, wherever I see one that I fancy and buy it to put in my collection. Um, as far as the website goes, I can tell you what, without a shadow of a doubt, the most popular shirt ever viewed on our website, it's the Arsenal Red Current shirt. Mm. It regularly is in the top 10, if not the most viewed shirt on the website. It, it just And also the Newcastle United one with the granddad collar. I, don't, I can't remember what season it's from now. Yeah. Um, so those those are two that are always popular on the website. Uh, always uh, on the on the front of our website, there is a list of the most viewed shirts in the last uh, 24 hours and seven days. And mm-hmm. those two are, are regularly in there. I mean, there are some, some you, know, there, you know, some people have posted some astonishing shirts on there. Um, some very well-known collectors have posted on the website. So there are, you know, stuff with Pele on, Ronaldo on, um, you know, pick, pick a name really. I mean, if you go through some of the Italian teams, there are some absolutely stunning shirts from the, mm. from the, the 80s, or, you know, Italy, the Italian sort of, when they, when Italy and football was just so huge, the 80s. Yeah. And- they have got a bit of style, haven't they, the Italians, when it comes to such things? Well, the stylish shirts and stylish players, of course, because they did go through a, a very purple patch, didn't they? Yeah, uh, they do wear it well, to be fair, don't they, as well? They get away with that, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, wanted, you wanted to ask about the New England shirt. Yes, you? yeah. I, I mean, I think it looks awful. I, well, I ask you this. Forget that you've even seen that one. Imagine, imagine the England 1983 shirt never existed. Right, yeah. Right, never and last month, Nike came out with a shirt that had a big blue stripe and a big red stripe going across the front and said, here's the New England shirt. I think people would have been far more horrified than the one that they've just brought out if they'd done that then. So I think um, I think it's, yeah, people say that these football shirt manufacturers have no imagination. I think there's something there without going too mad. I don't think it's as bad as people are saying. Okay, fair but as I said, if they brought out that Admiral 83 shirt now, people would go mental about it. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was sort of 80 through to, 80 through to 83, wasn't it? The, yeah. Um, but, I, I mean, I like that one. Um, yeah, I mean, 80 to 83 for that that England show is just brilliant. Um, I'd love to have it. But I think if they brought that out now, people would be absolutely yeah. furious. Well, I think I think for me it's it's underwhelming is, is what I feel about the new one. I just, I'm not sure it's got much about it all these things are relative aren't they over time uh things grow on you or they don't over time i think the albion's current shirt we'll probably talk about that in a minute but i think that's one that's also you know loads of people had a negative reaction to that there's a whole thing about the h on it and everything else but then i think people especially now it's been seen on the pitch it looks a bit better on the pitch and on the on the players obviously and and i think it's grown on people a bit 
time is a well i don't know if you want to call it a healer but it's a a change of opinions over over time isn't it um i think it is i, I, I think i like our new home shirt now yeah i do i actively yeah, like it and i hate I think, it when it came out i think the thing that i mean the thing is the football shirt has now become is ubiquitous the right word i'm never sure if i use that word correctly but it's become football shirts have become such um currency or whatever for conversation over the years and I'm I'm a member of a few football shirt groups on Facebook and Twitter and stuff. And you get some people who just persistently say, yeah, it's a great shirt ruined by a sponsor. And, <laughs> stop, and then they will say it to every single shirt they ever see. And think, Hang on a minute. I'm 57 this year. I can barely remember football when there wasn't a sponsor on the shirt. You know, was the British Caledonian logo any good? No, but we love that shirt. I think, and I think, well, some, some sponsors are dreadful, and the proliferation of betting companies is a more of a worry rather than, a, you know, if it wasn't Bet 362 but was, you know, Kebabs 362, would the sponsor look better? I don't know. But every shirt in this room, bar a tiny handful of international shirts, has got sponsors on it. And you think, well, get over yourself. It's just a sponsor. Your shirt has to have a sponsor. Thankfully, international shirts don't yet. Um, and so I think a nice white shirt with a bit of blue trim works fine for England. Yeah. Well, your, your, your man you're talking about there, the, the only thing he will be happy with is the Nottingham Forest shirt, because um, I don't know if they've done it now, but they didn't have a sponsor at the beginning of the season, which is a look, curiosity. Yes. It looks odd. <laughs> it actually does, doesn't it? It, it looks, looks even weirder when you see them playing with a shirt without you think, what are you wearing there, your vest or something? <laughs> There we go. Yeah, I mean, it might grow on us. I mean, one thing that would help is if we win the World Cup. I think people would mysteriously get a lot more fond of that shirt anyway yeah. if we did win that. I don't think we will based on recent games, but then who knows? It's it's a different it's a different um, phase of the season when we when we come back and play the World Cup. Who well, knows? Who knows? It agrees with me on this, but neither Andy or I will be watching this World Cup anyway, so it won't count whether we win it or not. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, Andy's uh, very vociferous about uh, about it. I'm not in any way keen at all. Um, I probably will end up watching it just because because um, I don't think I'm, I'm individually going to make much difference on two enormous viewing figures on TV. I certainly wouldn't travel um, if it, if I was a regular traveller to England games, which I'm not. I've I've never been to a um, to a tournament match um, before. Um, but if I was, I think I would boycott this tournament even though I'm sure there'll be some elements of it. It'll be fine. But, uh, yeah, just on principle, the reasons they got it, or I think the reasons they got it, um, obviously the various things that have gone on with the development of the stadiums and, and, for, and a number of moral issues besides uh, preclude me from being keen on it at all. But you're actually going to not watch any of the games. Disown the entire experience. I don't reckon, I don't reckon yeah, we'll see how long it is before I crack. But that's <laughs> anyway. Get to the final, maybe. <laughs> Against yeah. Germany at halftime in the semi-final, I might put it on. Yeah. The beauty is, of course, and um, there is going to be other football on, or at least we think there is anyway, from lower leagues and non-leagues. Yeah. So there'll be plenty of other games to go to. I'm hoping to tick off some grounds during that period anyway. Um, yeah. I'm not going to glue to the TV. I'm going to, I'm just going to pick and choose, uh, probably through recording stuff anyway, and and just get along to some more grounds while I can. Try and get up. To, I'm on 84 of the 92. I've just recalculated. Um, so I've, I've got eight more grounds to try and tick off in the next year or two, but 
We'll see. We'll see. Um, we won't dwell on England too much, other than to say they're looking a bit ropey at the moment. An interesting game last night, as we record this uh, Monday night. Uh, nothing in the first half, continuing our, our long run without scoring. And I think it went on for 566 minutes before we scored. Uh, wow. But we took the trouble to go 2-0 down in the second half to Germany before coming back to lead 3-2 and then threw it away with, a, uh, I think, a second mistake of the game by one of the defensive players, in this case, Pope. Uh, Maguire looked good, though. You know, he gave the ball away and then fell for the penalty, um, uh, justifying his position in the team. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll rant no more about that. <laughs> <laughs> one, one of the things, actually, which I forgot to rant about last time, um, to do with the national anthem, not to do with the England game, actually, but to do with um, post-Queen's death and the anthems at games and the anthems before games, uh, sorry, before the Queen's death as well. Why the hell do we have a professional singer singing? We don't need it at grounds. Um, the crowd on mass singing is much more effective. And secondly, they go up at the end of the song, at the end of the um, anthem, which is awful. You know, that God save the Queen. So, oh, it's awful. I can't stand it. It's horrendous. I wish they wouldn't do it. Um, it's a bit like um, music in the build-up to kick-off, isn't it? Really, it's just I, I really hate that little Premier League nonsense they have to play after good yeah. old Saturday, and indeed after every club's walkout. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what's the point? And I, I agree with you on the God Save Our Queen King. Um, you don't, <laughs> you don't have a singer, singer. You certainly don't need one that then changes into an Italy kit halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, indeed. Um, actually, on that subject, Jack, friend of the show, so Jack Phillips, um said that he, he's got a bugbear about Good Old Sussex by the Sea at the end, where we sing um, Sussex by the Sea as a kind of flat thing. It should be by the sea, with an emphasis on by. Yeah. I don't know if that's the traditional. I think it is, isn't it, the traditional it is, one? yeah. yeah. That's, how we, that's how we sing it. Yeah. yeah. We go up yeah. for that, yeah. We go up for that bit, yeah. 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 Well, I do as well, but I... I um, I can't say I'm in the majority of the people around me, but never mind. We can try and fight to get it working properly, can't we, guys? Well, you yeah. Now you're going to want musical notes underneath the words on the big screen, are you? <laughs> I think we're coping badly enough with the words, aren't we? Uh, for a lot of, I say we, other people with the grounds. Yeah, yeah it's all good. Um, anyway, yeah, so that's the one rant. Um, another rant was about um, media's failure to coverage the Albion fan opinions um, in the departure of Graham Potter and the run-up to our new manager being appointed. They've got a 24-hour sports news channel that is very heavily weighted towards football. And yet the amount of times they don't fill it with more interesting bits and pieces, I think features on lower league clubs and loads of stuff like that. But much more fan opinion could be gauged in a proper way rather than just getting a random, odd-looking guy that's walking past the club shop somewhere in, you know, outside Hull City Centre or somewhere. You know, in the case of the Albion, I didn't see any representation of Albion fan opinion at all about A, the loss of Grand Potter, or B, uh, who we wanted or thought was going to come in. Um, I even sort of put out, had a pop at Sky on Twitter, didn't get a reply, not surprised, but um, there was nothing. There was, there was, they seem to have so many podcasters, for example, talking about Tottenham multiply, talking about Liverpool multiply, and Liverpool guys are great on there actually, but nonetheless, you know, it's a lot of heavy weight on that. We know why, the big six factors, of course. But well, it's a twenty four hour channel, surely they can get a little bit more than just the big six on and well, rotating the same news. I know I know a, a couple of Brighton fan podcasters have managed to get themselves on there. I mean, might I suggest uh that it's actually 
if if you want that, you run a Brighton podcast, then get onto them and not not tweet at them or whatever. Get onto them directly. Look, I'm a Brighton podcaster. I've got views that you want to listen to when you're talking about Brighton, rather than talking to some random walking past the club shop. And <laughs> and, 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 and you know those guys we talk about the Liverpool and the Spurs podcasters and those idiots at Arsenal and all that. That's because first of all, I mean, they're incredibly popular podcasts. I'm not saying that yours isn't or any well, of but they yeah. are bigger. But those guys, I'm sure, caught Sky Sports anyway to get Sky Sports to reciprocate that that would be my thought on that yeah you might you might well be right yeah i'm not too worried whether it's me it's just the the fact that um no there wasn't anybody on there i would have thought they would have sought out opinions but i do take your point that you know maybe we should uh push to get uh get our voices heard as well um god knows i think people have enough of my voice already but (laughs) (laughs) the place would be a step too far i think (laughs) if it was on sky sports yeah but um yeah i'd it's irritating, isn't it? The the media slant. We we all know about it. We've all ranted about it a million times, anyway. Um, in part, didn't realise though that this was a great opportunity for Potter and Chelsea. What's it got to do with Brighton? <laughs> <laughs> That's the way Sky <laughs> saw it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, let's come on to that subject then. So we've got Deserbi in. Uh, we've, we've had a podcast since, but Andy, uh, that wasn't the one you were on. You um, you were on when we were in flux at the time. Yeah. So I want to get your opinion and, and Phil's on the new man, Roberto Deserbi. Um, he's been appointed four-year deal, 43-year-old, lots of exciting ideas. There's a lot being talked already about the tactics and on this podcast and all the other Albion ones as well. You know, progressive attacking, passing play, lots of short passes out for the back to try and get uh, moves going, beating the press, etc. Um, your views on it? Oh, should we go with Andy first? Um, you, I, from speaking to you off air, it sounds like you're pretty excited about this appointment. As I, I'm, yeah, I'm I'm really excited by this appointment. Um, I think of the. I think of the candidates um, that were being touted about. I, I think he's. I think he's the most interesting one. I think, again, used to managing clubs of similar size and ambition as, as, as the Albion, um, sort of you know making the most of what he's got, but a bit more attacking than than from the outset. From uh, you know. Like his philosophy, his philosophy is to like is to score goals. I know a lot's been said about how many goals his teams concede, but I'm not sure he's had defenders as good as ours in in the teams that he's had before. So um, I think, and and the way that he wants to score goals seems to suit our our players, the players that we already have. Um, um, I was discussing it with with Philip ironically this weekend. I think. People like Trossard and Sonny March are really going to, I think in March in particular, are really going to learn a lot from this manager. I think he's going to get, it's going to open up their eyes a little bit more. I think Trossard's just an ideal deserving player. Hopefully we can keep hold of him uh, long enough to, to, to see that come to fruition for, for a bit longer. But I'm really, I'm really excited. I like, he's got good qualities as a person. I think that's something that's important for the club as well. Um, but he's, but he's very positive. And yeah, now if we end up, you know, scoring 70 and conceding 60, well, that's a plus 10 goal difference. I mean, when was the last time the Albion, the Albion's ever finished with a plus goal difference in the Premier League? You know, I would settle for plus one. Yeah. You'd go along with that, wouldn't you, Phil, as well? I think, well, as Andy just said, we were discussing it at the weekend. And yeah, I mean, if we could come out with a, with a positive goal difference, as long as it was the 
the, the way the abacus fell that meant we won a bunch of the games at the same time. Hmm. Um, I think, um, I'll be honest, I haven't massively studied Zerbi. Um, I've looked at some of the reels that have, that have floated around. I've listened to him talk through interpreter and also, you know, his own little uh, little go at speaking. And it, I, th- I think it could be it could be a little bit more uh, gung ho than with Potter, um, but Andy quite rightly said he's got some cracking players to work with, and let's hope that those cracking players choose to stay Brighton players um, for the foreseeable future. I mean, there's an awful lot of horrible, you know, speculation stuff going around, which to a degree you've got to wait till it happens before you can accept it. But we ain't going to lose all of our squad and we have got some really good players in that squad. We really have got some cracking um, uh, prospects. We bumped into a Royal Union San Joao's season ticket holder in Brussels and he was gutted that Undav had gone <laughs> and uh, he said that he's going to be immense for Brighton once he finds finds his, his, yeah. his speed and so Deserby's got him to play with and, and Mittemar, you know, they're two players that really we haven't seen enough of to see them as what they're, what, what we've brought them in for and he is going to have them as a, a blank canvas if you like to, 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 to tune into his way he wants Brighton to play, I mean they could be astonishing you look at Casado, Mwepo, um, some other players that are on rubbish at pronunciation. Um, <laughs> you know, you think Estepan, is it? Estepan, yeah. Told you on rubbish at pronunciation. March, I think it is. Yeah. But I think once he gets his hands on those players, he's got such good players to work with. You know, frankly, if we're still in the top four at Christmas or the top six or even the top eight at come Christmas, come the January transfer window, it's going to be a big ask to a player to move on, isn't it? Hang on a minute, you know, I'm already flying high here. And so I, I really hope that he is gung-ho, but I hope he, he can respect um, the fact that we also have a very, very good defensive history in the Premier League. Um, oh yeah, I want to see you know, Duncan Webster keep developing. Yeah, I mean, on, on the on the press conference, I agree with you about the, about the defence, but on the press conference, I think he, he, he mentioned a few names and they were essentially the flair attacking players. I think he mentioned McAllister Trossard, for example. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously he's about creative attacking football and you would like to think that those players would in, therefore enjoy working with a coach like that and therefore hopefully would stay for longer as we were saying we would like to see. Um, certainly there's, there's a good hope of it anyway, isn't there? Um, but Andy, yeah, you wanted you want to come in on this, didn't you, as well? Yeah, I just thought it's quite interesting this week the Albion revealed their first training ground videos. I've been starting to do these training ground videos over this season, which I think they've actually been quite good fun to watch. Um, and so they had like Nieti Zerbi's first first sort of day on the job at the training session and just looking at the energy they're not showing you too much because they don't want to give away tactics and stuff but like the the feeling you got was it was like fast, 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 fast buzzy, 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 buzzy he's sort of yelling out in Italian and obviously he'll have his translator barking the instructions out but uh, you know Crofty you know, sort of there, sort of marshalling things as well. And Adam Lallana sort of taking a little bit more of a, a role sort of with, with the players. And there just seemed to be a really nice buzz about it. He just, he seemed to be delighted to be there. He was, you know, he was like sprinting around everywhere. He's, he's encouraging the other coaches, like, you know, watching them like a hawk. But it was pace, 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 it was tempo, tempo. 
and that seemed to marry up with everything that that I've you know that that we've seen in all our you know all the the videos talking about Deserby and and how he likes to approach the game and already you just see that little bit of spite there's lot you know lots of smiles that's something you know it's all for the camera isn't it but but you know I'm taking a positive from that I I really enjoyed watching that that video and I got a positive feeling from it obviously we've got players away on international duty this week but the ones that were there were really really seemed to be into it and obviously a few of the under 21 players would have been in there making up the numbers for the international players so a great opportunity for them as well to be part of that um experience um and after like the colossal disappointment and trauma of Potter leaving now we have a feeling of excitement and now I mean we don't know what we're going to get and you know it's mm. yeah what we're going to get I just get it I, I'm optimistic that this is going to be a good move he obviously he's watched our games. He knows that you know that we're quite good at the moment. So he doesn't need to come in and say, right, forget what you've been doing. You know, he's going to say, no, remember what you're going to be doing. What we're going to do is we're going to add to it. Yeah. So I wouldn't carry on doing that because that's good. That's working. So, but, but if you just sprinkle a little bit of this in, we might even be a bit. We might even be a bit better. I think that's going to be his approach initially, and then obviously. What better team to open up against than uh, than Liverpool Anfield? Um, you know, ironically, you know, a, a match that we've actually competed well in in the last few seasons, and actually, you know, unbeaten in the last two visits. So, also a free hit as well, isn't it? Yeah, just a free hit. But I think it's also it's not, you know, not, you know, let's be selfish. We've got that full spot, so let's let's hold on to it for as long as we can, and that's like. Keep them below us yeah. a bit more. I don't know. Just be, you know, if, if you've got it to hang on to, and yeah, I don't think we'll go in there with any fear. Um, Liverpool, obviously, disappointing start to the season for them. They're going to come good at some point because they just players are just too good. But, um, but you know what? We're good as well, and uh, yeah. I, I, and I'm really optimistic. I really am. Yeah, it's a shame. I can't. I'm not going on Saturday. I really wish I was going. I just can't. I just can't wait to see Deserby take control of this team and get them out there and sit and see what they're going to do and see how they see how they take to him. Absolutely, I'm missing the game as well. I'm at Stanton in Newcastle. I was hoping it would be uh, in Newcastle that that fixture, but never mind. So I'm missing that one, and I'm actually away in Italy, so I missed the Spurs game as well. So I'm going to miss his first home game too, which is a bit frustrating. Um, but yeah, I mean, can't wait to see how he does. It's it's really opt- optimism galore now, isn't it? An early healing process by getting in a what looks like very good replacement for Graham Potter, who could be even better. And and that the, just the concept of that makes it. Pretty exciting going forward, doesn't it, Phil? Fantastic. I mean, that, that would wouldn't it just be brilliant if this time next year we say, "Well, who's Potter?" Yeah, you know, and yeah, you know, there's no reason to say we shouldn't because let's face it, we said who's Potter when he came to us, mm. um, and he proved himself a hundred percent. And I think he's also proved that intelligence and, and the tactician element is is vital now. Uh, especially if you're going to go into a football club that's, um, shall we say, not one of the top ones that almost governs itself. Yeah. And um, I don't um, care for Chelsea, I really don't. Uh, but I think Deserby could just suddenly find himself with this outstanding opportunity. 
and hopefully he'll do it for as long as Potter did it for us. And uh, if not, well. yeah, we just need Italy to do well enough to keep Mancini, but not so well that he wins it. Because he might want to quit if he wins. You see what I mean? Um, on a high. So if they get to the final, lose a final maybe, and, and have a bit un- unfinished business for next time, because we sure as hell don't want him. <laughs> No. Going that soon. Um, apparently, Juventus fans, quite a few Juventus fans, were disappointed that Deserbi's gone to us. Um, some of them fancied him as a possible option should they change, which um, there is talk of at the Juve because they're not not doing so well at the moment and the way they're, the way they're playing as well as uh, the results. So um, that could be I interesting. Wonder, I wonder if there'll be a turning point where where just because they're called Juventus or Barcelona or Liverpool or Chelsea is no longer a reason for the best people to go there. You know, is is it time for that that sort of top? They call themselves the, the the ESL lot. You know, is it time for that bubble to burst a little bit? Yeah, you know, you know yeah, we yeah we we sort of pressed it a bit when we took people like Steve Coppel and, and Peter Taylor in the past, and when we brought Gus in, and uh, and you know. Maybe it's time for, and maybe unfortunately, maybe that's where Chelsea have realised actually we don't want a massive name. We want someone who's actually good at this job, uh, <laughs> and they are they are in a position to afford to do it. But you know, perhaps that's where we go. I mean, we we have seen some bigger names managing lower down, shall we say, the the, the ranks, and uh, you know, maybe it's a maybe it's a summit summit for the future. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to go on to talking, I don't think we can have on this um, segment now, but talking about the uh, the away tickets, there's been a bit of a fuss about that. I'm going to come on to that subject um, later on, possibly later on in this podcast. Um, we'll probably break for part the end of part one here, though. I don't know if you guys have got to shoot off or not, just uh, before we uh, have our guest in part two. I think Nods, is it Nods, or are you able to hang yeah, out? Yeah, I've got a- yeah, I've got to shoot off, mate. So. Yeah. Okay. So, so if on that case, in that case, I'll say thank you again to Andy for joining us. Always a pleasure, sir. Yeah. Um, thank absolutely. you. Well, yeah. Thank you to Phil as well for joining us for his first occasion with the Brighton Rock Podcast. Uh, just quickly, it's oldfootballshirts.com, isn't it? If people want to look up your website. Um, what about um, online as well? You mentioned Twitter and, and elsewhere. Um, if people want to hook up on there. Well, Twitter, the, the Old Football Shirts Twitter is at Old Shirts. Yeah. If you want to have a look at my Brighton Matchworn collection, it's at BHAFC underscore Matchworn. Excellent. Superb. So check it out, everybody, and get yeah. looking on that website as well. Lots of fun and, uh, well, excellent uh, shirts to have a look at on there. It's great stuff. I love it. It's great. Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks again there to Andy and Phil. Um, we'll get you back on, I'm sure, in the future. And um, yeah. um, are you going to the Liverpool game, by the way, Phil? No, I'm going to go off to the States on Saturday morning for a week, so I'm going to miss Liverpool and Spurs. So. Oh, so you're missing the same as me. Yeah, oh, I'll Spurs. Andy, you're first up then. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Excellent. Well, thanks, guys, for joining us. And um, that brings an end to the first part. In part two, we'll be talking to Neil Atkinson from the Anfield Wrap. And so to part two, where I'm now glad to warmly welcome back to the podcast, Mr. Neil Atkinson from the Anfield Wrap. Hello, Neil. Hello there. How are we doing, Russ? Very well, thanks. How are you doing? 
Excellent stuff. Uh, been a bit of a funny start to the season for us, but we haven't played a league game for what feels like four or five years. Uh, so I don't know quite what you expect. And you've got a new manager, so I don't know what to expect from you. But the footballers might have grown. They might be different. They might all, you know, they might have two heads. But all we you know, we've just not seen them. It really has been up in the air, hasn't it? All over the place. Uh, I mean, we've, we've been talking obviously on other podcasts about um, the uh, the Deserby appointment. We're pretty pretty gutted with Graham Potter leaving. We're, we're right on the crest of a wave. Obviously, you can imagine the timing was a nightmare for us. Um, however, we are pretty excited about Deserby. I think once people have become accustomed to you know what he was all about and what he was going to represent and what what he was going to bring i think everyone was all on board with us getting him in and we we have got him in um the the bonus being that there's no uh, compensation to pay for anyone because he wasn't in work so a 22.5 million profit there happy with that (laughs) um in terms of um perceptions outside looking in what have you made of the appointment any i know it's difficult you won't have seen much of his games with the teams he's been uh managing really I think the first thing the appointment is, is it's really, really interesting. And I think it's an example genuinely of what I think the wider sort of football world thinks about Brighton, which is they've got their own way of doing things. And I always think that's, you know, from a football club's point of view, I've just finished reading, uh, Pep, well, rereading Pep Linders' book that he brought out over the summer. And he's very into the idea that Liverpool have got their own way of doing things. And I think that Brighton, the most out of those clubs who are sort of now established as ranked, let's say, between 88th and 15th in the Premier League. I think Brighton have, have, have most concretely got their own way of doing things. I don't think we can quite put Brentford in the category of 8 to 15th yet. They need to do it for a couple of seasons. And so within all of that, I'm fascinated to see how it sort of plays out. I think there's he appears to be a, a really strong manager around player development. And I think that that's something which, you know, is is... One of the things that I think was interesting about Brighton under Potter was I think that there was a lot of onus placed on Potter. Rightly so, I hasten to add. But it was almost as though the idea of the player development that he actually did do went a bit under the radar because people were so desperate to praise his tactical nous and the, the tweaks he'd make and the flexibility he'd show. But what he also did was he improved players. I think with Deserby, the one thing you can say from his career all the way through is that he's been a developer of footballers. So I'm expecting, obviously, not for him to be tactically naive or anything. I think he'd be very, very switched on. But I think that it might actually put a bit more of the focus back on some of these excellent Brighton players now that Potter's moved on, at least for the short term. And if Deserby's a roaring success, then rightly, you know, he'll get the credit for that. But I think that there's more to Brighton than just Graham Potter. You know, these were players who were able to respond to Potter's methods. You know, Adam Webster's a really good example. Veltman's a really good example footballers who were able to show an unbelievable amount of tactical sophistication and intelligence. So, you know, it's 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 important, obviously, to remember the coaching staff and remember what managers do, but it still has to be implemented by footballers. And if those footballers aren't capable of dealing with complicated ideas, then they'll, they'll sink. Whereas the thing about Graham Potter's Brighton is the players swam. And obviously that a massive part of that's Potter, but also it's those players themselves and they deserve that credit. So I think a little bit of the focus will come back on them now and that could be no bad thing for 12 months for Brighton at least. I think that's a really good point, actually, Neil. The um, the player adaptability in match um, was something that I think went a bit under the radar, but of course that must have been happening for us to adapt the tactics so well in game. Whether, uh, you know, just, I think it's uh, one responding to whatever Graham's giving out as his instructions, but also recognising things and recognising the need to change, little nuances within a yeah. match. 
Yeah, I think, you know, a really good example of that is the footballer that was billed as Alexis McAllister and the footballer that you've seen, I mean, you've seen a lot more than me, but the footballer that you've seen as Alexis McAllister this season are massively different things. McAllister's effectively, from what I've seen, dropped 20 yards down the pitch. You know, this idea of him being a, a clever number 10, he's suddenly now one of the brightest playmaking number sixes in the country. Now, obviously, that's brilliant work from Potter and his team, but McAllister's got to be able to respond and he's got to be able to pick up those ideas and he's got to be able to do the business. And that's what, when I've caught Brighton this season, for me, he's been the outstanding footballer on the pitch almost every time I've seen Brighton, you know, and part of that is, I think, not just that he responds to the tactical ideas, but actually in-game, the way in which he passes the ball, there's the old Wenger line about passing with information on it, and every single one of McAllister's balls pretty much says to the player what he wants him to do, sets him up what he wants him to do, and, you know, for me, I think thinking about the game at the weekend from, from what we what I've saw so far out of Brighton this season, presuming Deserby doesn't change too much too soon. You know, Liverpool's Liverpool have got to have an, a way of ensuring that they don't let McAllister run the show because he's been more than capable of that every single time I've caught Brighton this season, whoever the opposition have been. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting thing about him being as a number six, playing deeper this this season, McAllister, is a good point. Um, he's been playing as part of a double pivot, which Deserbi apparently has adopted himself in previous incarnations for previous teams. So he may he, that's one of the examples where he probably won't change something straight away. I agree with you. I think McAllister's been the standout. We looked at the uh, our particular on Brian Rock's sort of man of the match um, so far this season, and he's edged it. He's the only one I think that's had two because we've had really good performances from various players, but he's been consistently good and he's been the outstanding player on more than one occasion, which is uh, you know, from only a handful of games, obviously, for the reasons you said. You know, three, Was it four or five years since the last game? It feels yeah. like. um, it's, I'm itching to get back and, and see how he does and see how the team does um, uh, yeah, with Deserby in charge. It's going to be an interesting place to start that journey. And we've got Spurs at home the week after. So some tough games, probably games that you could say are the, the proverbial free, free hits because you wouldn't expect results against the big sides. But then again, we've done quite well against the big sides, including yourselves at Anfield, actually. We've obviously we had our results in lockdown 1-0, and we've had the interesting tool draw last season. So who knows? What, what are you thinking about a game this weekend? I think uh, to, on those games, I think there's... Listen, I want to be really clear. Um, last season, the, the game at Anfield, I thought the, the second half performance from Brighton was excellent. I think Liverpool... We're not good in that second half. I think that they they, they they dropped off, but there was there was it was one of the games which is at the biggest sixty second swing I've ever seen. Mane makes it three 0 but VAR gives it offside, and then Moepu, um, I think it was, has the shot into the sun that the keeper loses. He's just a, he's just he's just having a slash at it, and the keeper loses. He's twenty five yards out. The keeper loses it in the sky, and suddenly it's two one Brighton, and the whole game, you know, turns on its head. It could have been three 0 Liverpool. Uh, I know that sounds ever so slightly like sour grapes, but it is also worth pointing out we lost the league title by a point over the course of the season so you remember these things in that context um but the second half performance from Brighton was 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 terrific you know I thought Trossard especially such clever movements that day what was interesting was then the game at the Amex uh in February where I felt Liverpool turned up and did an astonishingly professional job against a side that you're, you're always wary of in a number of different ways um and for me you know that's the sort of job that Liverpool have been failing to do this season. And I actually think this is a really good watermark game for us uh, in terms of whether or not we're, we're getting this season back on track. I, I don't want to sort of build the game too much as though it's it's absolutely make or break for Liverpool in a couple of senses. But, you know, there's ways to beat a team like Brighton um, where 
you do it with not with a minimum of force. You've got to work ever so hard and you've got to be really clever, but where you find a way to control the game and then from there you go on and, and, and succeed across the course of the game. And those two games are good examples. You know, in game one, Liverpool, even from a 2-0 position, manifestly failed to do that. And in the second game, the game at the Amex, from the point we were 1-0 up, you know, I never felt the game was in danger from a Liverpool point of view. I felt we we had we had matters in hand all mm. the way from that point. Um, and that sort of tells the story that that Liverpool side went on last season. You know, the Liverpool side in the second half of the season was a results-gathering machine. The Liverpool side in the first half of the season was a, was a bit more vulnerable and could have unlikely things happen. We ship three at Brentford. We ship three at West Ham. Around that period, we, we concede two goals to Brighton from a 2-0 position. So for me, you know, the key question, obviously, for, as a Liverpool supporter, but also in general, is what Liverpool turns up. Because I think if the Liverpool turns up that is capable of getting in front and controlling a football match, then great. But we've actually only been ahead de facto, even though we've won two games. You know, Newcastle, we win with the last kick. We've only been ahead, really, in one game this season, which is the game at home against Bournemouth, where we score nine. Yeah, you were and, quite far ahead in that game, weren't you? Yeah, we, got, <laughs> we, we, we went one, we went two after six minutes. And then, it you know, it was one of those games where, to be fair to Bournemouth, Listen, you know, it was one of those games where I think we scored two from a set piece. Uh, they get they concede an own goal. Um, you've got people banging in 20, 20 25 yards and they're going in the top corner. You know, yeah, listen, yeah, what, we, 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 it was the sort of game which we should win 4 0 and we accidentally scored nine. Um, <laughs> and then there's been other games where we haven't been able to, you know, we've, we've got a really poor record of going ahead. So even yeah. when we played all right in the end in some of these matches, you know, there's a couple of, of shockers aside. But we just haven't scored the go-ahead goal, and and that that's going to be, I think, the the massive test for this one from a Liverpool point of view. I think if we can get ahead in the game and show that maturity, then I think we'll be okay. But there's every chance, you know, we we'll, we don't want to get stuck in another morass of a game. And also, there's obviously a lot of quality in this Brighton side, and there's a lot of nous in this Brighton side. And if you know, I, I think they're the sort of side that if you give an inch to, they could take a mile. So you know, I, I'm I'm very much not. I'm really looking forward to the game, not least because we haven't seen anyone play for ages. But um, I'm simultaneously, you know, I don't think it's going to be a stroll for Liverpool. And if they're not at it and they're not ready, then I think they could be punished. Yeah, yeah. It could well be the case. I mean, I, I think I'm listening to one of your recent episodes. I think you were describing Ajax as the probably the best performance this season in terms of obviously taking into account opposition, I suppose, so discounting the Bournemouth game. But in terms of... Yeah. Closer expected games. It was, I think, somebody said it was the best performance. And and yet again, there you still had to really push to get the result in the end. And I think this this game could go any old now. We've, <laughs> we've got no idea. We really you got a different manager. He he might adopt different tactics later down the line from in this first game. The general notion is that he likes to uh, beat the high press, uh, the Geigen press, and play lots of very short, quick passes for the turnaround out into the attack. Um, obviously Liverpool like to play with a high press. So if it worked, that could be bad news for you. But the reality is most of the players that we're going to have in the team or would want to have in the team starting on Saturday are going to be out on international duty. He hasn't yeah. really worked with them yet at all. Uh, pretty much the exact timing of when he came in was when they were leaving. Um, and even if he has, you know, it's the first attempt under him to do that particular thing. We do a version of it already under Potter, but this is a little bit different probably. And to be the first team to come up against, I've got a lot of concern that we'll probably won't quite get it right as often as we would like to early on. And therefore, 
where the team does get open at the back sometimes. I think this might be one of those games. And Liverpool's not the best team in the world to leave yourself open at the back against, I have to say. Well, I think I think the big thing for us is um, the returns of, of Thiago Alcantara and Diogo Jota. Both start against Ajax and Jota, for the first half, leads Liverpool's press brilliantly. It's, it tends to be Jota who goes first. So Diaz does loads and loads of pressures on their keeper because they were playing around at the back. But in terms of when they get the ball sort of 20 yards up the pitch, when Jota goes, Liverpool go. And what we were ha- happening in previous games at times was we were getting sucked in to pressing when we shouldn't be pressing um, and just sort of chasing everything, really, being a little bit, uh, little bit headless. So I think in this one, the return of Jota, you know, he scored for playing for Portugal uh, in the in, in the midweek as well. And the other thing about Jota is that in the first half of last season, or until about February, he scores an awful lot of big goals, goals that break games. So he scores, he outperforms his expected goals massively when Liverpool are drawing and when Liverpool are losing in matches. Uh, when Liverpool are winning in matches, he's actually, you know, he doesn't get that many, but he scores a lot of goals to make it 1-0 or make it 1-1 or make it 2-1 over the course of last season. scores a lot of first half goals as well and that's that's what we've been lacking you know I think that there's a lot of righteous indignation about performances but there's three ways to control a game and most teams manage to do them do do two of them at once the three mm. ways you control the game one is with the ball you can control the game without the ball but you control can control the game with the scoreboard and if you've got the scoreboard on your side whichever of the other two options you choose becomes easier and mm. Liverpool this season have played with an, with an awful lot of scoreboard pressure Every single game, bar that Bournemouth one, mm. and we and the Napoli one, if we're honest, because they battered us, has been a game that's gone for ninety minutes. Uh, you know, it's it's you know, United outplayers for the first for the first half an hour, but from then it's relatively even. But the issue is, we go two 0 down, we get it back to two one, but the game's still alive. You know, last kick, if we if if we goes our way, last kick, we make it two two. We haven't really had a game where you know we've been able to sort of not play in second gear, but feel as though we're in control of it. And, and Jota might give us that. And then if we if we do get ahead, that's where the importance of someone like Thiago Alcantara especially comes in. And Thiago hasn't gone away on international duty, uh, which is good for his fitness and good for us looking after him. So, you know, I'd expect Thiago to start. I'd expect Jota to start. I wouldn't expect Darwin Nunez to start. I think he'll start the midweek game against Rangers. Uh, Liverpool will go with Diaz and Salah, I suspect, either side of Jota. And then from there, Thiago will start with, with, with Fabinho and one other in the middle of the Park, uh, and then I think at the back it'll be um, it'll be Trent Alexander-Arnold at right back uh, again. Doesn't play the second game for England, gets sent home early. Robertson, I suspect, will come back in. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it was Shimakas, but I think Robertson will come back in. And then I think it'll be Van Dijk and Matip, and obviously Alisson Becker in goal. And that, that I think that's what Liverpool will go with. The question is who's the third midfielder, and I think that a lot of that will come down to fitness as much as anything else. Yeah. Hopefully, um, well, not too much for our detriment, but I think you're, the break you've had, I know some people have been on international duty, of course, but the break from action for Liverpool itself uh, may be a benefit possibly for you guys, I guess. Yeah, yeah, we need to get some players back fit. You know, it was uh, Jota missed much of pre-season, which I think has been an underrated loss. There's been a lot of people saying that Liverpool are missing Mane, but as I say before, you know, the first half of last season, Jota was arguably, you know, Jota and Salah were our two most important uh, attackers up until January. And then Mane came into his own in the second half of the season as Jota dropped off. Uh, but Jota was really important to us to the point that people were questioning Mane in the first half of last season. And then from there, you know, we, so we need to get Jota back. We had Nunez with the suspension in there as well. 
well. Matip's had an injury. He's now come back into, into selection. Canate is supposedly not too far away as well at the heart of that defence. Robertson's yeah. picked up a little bit of a knock, but we've had the international break to get him right. And across that midfield, Henderson's had an injury. Jones has had an injury. Oxlade-Chamberlain is perpetually injured. Kite is injured. Uh, Thiago's had the injury, but he got the, the Ajax game back, which was good. Uh, Artur's got, trying to get himself up to, up to fitness and up to speed. And there's been a lot of onus on Fabinho, who I actually think has been run into the ground a little bit because he's had to play every game. There's no option to rotate him. So... Yeah. I think that you know the I think that the, the break will have been good for us and it allows a bit of a reset, but it also just allows footballers getting themselves back fit. But then another phase of that though is even these lads who are coming back in, how match fit are they? But that's where maybe the five subs can help as well. Yeah, and I, very quickly because I know you've got to go in a second, Neil. But um, I, I was going to leave with the question: What the hell's happened to Liverpool this season? Because obviously you had a bad start. You pretty much answered it, and I think a lot of what that is is injuries, whether they'll be smaller or longer term. It disrupts the flow and the setup of the team, as as it did uh, a couple yeah. of years ago, wasn't it? When it made a big difference to your season, unfortunately for you. Yeah, I think there's, I think injuries have played a part, but it's important to say I think that there's also I think the manager's been through 2022. I think he's it's not he's not just starting at this season with the sign of Nunez, but I think he's been trying to transition the way Liverpool play to effectively get one more very attacking player on the pitch. So there was yeah. games last season where we were playing something pretty close to a four-two-four at times. So the third midfielder, the one who plays to the right, has been given a bit more leeway to effectively join that front line and become one more. And Elliot has sort of taken that mantle on this season since coming back from his injury his bad injury he sustained last season and he's a really exciting prospect Elliot but I think that's left Liverpool a little bit out of whack so a lot of the criticism that Trent Alexander-Arnold gets he's, he's really the, 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 the firstly he's the most targeted player Liverpool have got but the other thing is he's actually the least protected uh, player Liverpool have got because the left-hand side of midfielder sits a lot deeper so the four, it's called four three three, but it doesn't work symmetrically. The left hand side of midfielder tends to be a bit more of a number six style next to Fabinho. The right hand side of midfielder has been pushed higher and higher and higher uh, over the and, and Elliot is not Jordan Henderson. That at times is a positive, but that at times is also a negative. So that that's been ongoing. It's not just new to this season. I think that that's been there, but I think there's been something else as well, which is I think Liverpool. Firstly, have given opposition sides a little bit of encouragement. But I think there's also perhaps been a little bit of Liverpool feeling a teeny bit sorry for themselves off the back of the way in which last season finished. Or maybe just being a little bit exhausted. You know, last season we played every game and every game mattered in the end. You know, right up until the last, again, the same thing applied. We were only 1-0 down in the Champions League final and the league was in our hands until there was 15 minutes to go. And even then, you know, if, you know, if, if essentially City had conceded an equaliser to Villa, we'd have been champions. So... Yeah. There's a thing we talk about, I think, towards the end of the seasons where we say footballers are on the beach. And Liverpool's players have, lit, you know, Liverpool's most important players have not been able to be on the beach since 2016, yeah. even 2015, to be honest with you. You know, these are footballers who every single season have had every game matter. So even the season where we struggle and come third, we needed to go on a run at the end of the season where we, we out of the last 10 games, we won eight and drew two. We needed to win the last day to ensure we'd finish top four. So, Liverpool's players are just constantly have been constantly under basically playing under massive pressure. Um and I think it's I think there was elements at the start of the season where I think it just caught up with them. It was a curtailed pre-season. We did a Far East tour, which you do for commercial reasons, but that comes with risks. And I think that we've started the season a little bit undercooked. We've been a little bit unfortunate. We've been a little bit unfortunate with injuries, but simultaneously there's no hiding places. You know, we're in the business of trying to break 90 points. So if you're asking me what that was, I think that there was just a, a bit of a hangover. Hopefully we'll be on that now. Hopefully from our point of view, not your Saturday's part of that. 
Um, and hopefully, you know, for me, it's the season sort of starts here. And if we can put a run together, we've got City in a fortnight. You know, if we if when City come to Anfield, we can ins- certainly ensure that we don't lose, but possibly even find a way to win that game. You know, the last few times we played City, we're unbeaten against them. Um, so if we can find a way to win that game, then everything's still possible. But I think that the pressure has been on Liverpool a little bit. And I don't think, I think for the first time, really, they've not really quite stood up and to be counted. I expect that to get fixed. I expect it to have been fixed. And hopefully, from our point of view, I think we'll win on Saturday. And I actually, if you offered me a crazy 5-2 or a run-of-the-mill <laughs> 2-0, I'd take the run-of-the-mill 2-0. This side's just got to start winning normal games in a normal way. And with a bit of luck, that from our point of view, that starts Saturday. But Brighton will be a really difficult opponent. Yeah, it's a, it, you're likely to win it. Um, whatever happens, the bonus for us is we'll still be above you, at least for the month. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's not often we can say that, really, after no. a head of a head-to-head game. But, uh, yeah, I think you'll probably win it. I'll go for a 2-1. Um, but I, I think it's going to be an interesting game. Very interesting. Yep. It's a shame it's Saturday 3 o'clock. It really is one of those where Sky right now will be thinking, I wish yeah. this was on the telly. Yeah, I bet they do. And I'm not going to be there. I'll be a stag doing Newcastle. So, once again, I'm missing out on Liverpool, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> But we'll see how it goes. We'll, um, I know that'll catch the game on that match of the day. And Neil, it's, it's been a pleasure, as always. And um, we'll let you get to your dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Russ. See you later. See you soon. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Bye. So thanks there to Neil Atkinson for joining us for the Liverpool preview in part two. Also, thanks again to Andy Bass and to Phil Shelley for our part one chat about old football shirts and Roberto Di Zerbi. Part three, then, is the final bit, just me going alone, with a few other bits to talk about. Firstly, and foremostly, we've got to talk about managerial sackings. There's been quite a few recently, as well as Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank quitting, or leaving by mutual consent. We've also had Steve Morrison sacked from Cardiff, not really given much time there. We've had the um, older manager, John Sheridan. His Chazer action didn't quite work. They did get relegated. He started the season with them a little bit ropily. They've got rid of him. Uh, and they've got a new manager in, which is David Unsworth. Uh, interesting that he's dropping down a few divisions to start his uh, full-on coaching career. But there's been one other sacking that's just happened. The Watford manager, Rob Edwards, has been sacked after just 10 games in charge. Now, there was a bit of animosity when Forest Green Rovers lost him. They got promoted, League Two. They were full of confidence that they can have another good season with him. Um, Stabilising, maybe doing well in League One under his uh, tenure. But he quit. Um, Approached in rather ropey-sounding conditions. Which is to say that Dale Vince, the Forest Green chairman and owner, implied that um, there was a bit of an illegal approach possibly on the cards there. Anyway, he did move to Watford. He was assured of time. The Watford fans were desperate for a more stable environment for future managers to work in, uh, starting with this appointment. And they were assured as such because in a statement made by the chairman and chief executive of Watford... Mr Scott Duxbury Esquire he made this statement after the appointment of Rob Edwards this was on the 9th of June I think it was he said Watford Football Club needed its culture back and Robert Edwards we have appointed a manager who we all totally believe in and a manager who will lead us and drive that change we will be supporting Rob Edwards come hell or high water well I wonder if 
hell or high water has been weeks yet. I would imagine not so after 10 games. How the hell can a manager be expected to create his imprint on a team to get his philosophy put over and to get that team playing effectively within that philosophy after only 10 games. This is a team, don't forget, that's just got relegated and lost some of its best squad men who are now being expected to adapt to new conditions while having suffered the psychological blow of a relegation. Let's not underestimate that as well. I know some clubs can bounce back better than others, but ultimately it's not easy to do. Yet they've had to do that and they've only had 10 games and he's been sacked. Watford it, it is a pathetic club, really, in terms of the way it's been run. They've had a degree of success, which is almost pretty annoying, actually. That they've had some promotions, given that the way they get through their managers. I don't like to see clubs run that way. I'm sure most Watford fans, if not all Watford fans, feel the same. There's not much they can do about it, and I do feel sorry for them having to endure this time and time again. A bright, young English manager with prospects, making a, a leap, even with his promotion. It's a jump of another division. Uh, to go into the championship with Watford and he's not been given a fair crack of the whip. He may well have been doing a good job. When all said and done, even though they maybe weren't impressed with the way they were playing and some of the results, they were, after all, only one point behind the playoffs and only six points off the autos, which at this early stage of the season is still nothing, nothing at all to worry about yet. So it's far too early for that decision to be made. There's been far too many managerial changes at such an early stage this season, notwithstanding those that have stepped up to other roles, such as Graham Potter at Chelsea and Paul Warren, who um, has left Rotherham along with Richie the Bear Barker, former Albion cult hero uh, under Mickey Adams. Um, They've moved after a six-year stint with Rotherham to take up the job at Derby after Liam Rossinia was relieved of his interim duties. Um, They've given it a good run, really. They've been good for each other. They've been loyal to Rotherham. Rotherham have been loyal to them. They've had ups, they've had downs, literal ups and downs, promotions and relegations, six seasons. It's never dull following them. It's never dull supporting them. But... Ultimately, you know, he served his dues. It's his first managerial job. He stuck at it for six years, was given the chance to grow into the role. He's done well. They've been good for each other and he's moved on. So good luck to Paul Warren. Good luck to Richie Barker. I think that's a respectful amount of time uh, to spend with a club before moving on. Oh, are you listening, Mr. Potter? Anyway, that's that. Uh, speaking of Liam Rossini, uh, as I was about to record this, he was still employed by the club. Um, he was just relieved of the interim managerial duties as such. But he's now been relieved of his... uh, Well, he's left the club, basically. He's decided to move on. Um, I think what he does next will be interesting. Could there be a role for him back at the Albion? It's possible, but unlikely. Because I think there may not really be room to fit him in, uh, depending on what Roberto De Zerbi's plans are exactly, and whether he'd be inclined to come back to us in a a backroom role anyway. More likely, and probably justifiably, he could go for a coaching role, a head coaching role, or manager, role in the EFL, I would say, at a club of equivalent stature to Derby, perhaps. Maybe a club in the Championship even might give him a go. But unfortunately, um, we'll have to wait to find out what happens on that one. But the best of luck to Liam. He's a good guy. I've met him before. Really nice guy. Very intelligent and thoughtful on the game. And I think he's got a bright future. But uh, he has left Derby now. And the final points from me, really, and it's going back to a rant. We've ranted about it before. I'm going to rant about it again. Racism in football. It's reared its ugly head even more in recent weeks. We've had the Atletico Madrid incident. For anyone that doesn't know, uh, Real Mallorca were giving a lot of stick to uh, Vinicius Junior, the Brazilian international, uh, who plays for Real Madrid. 
and um, he was doing some dances in celebration. There was accusations he was over the top, maybe baiting fans and so on, and things were getting a bit uh, acrimonious. Anyway, that is what it is. Then it comes to Atletico Madrid play Real Madrid in the Madrid derby just a couple of weeks ago, and fans were being abusive before the game, outside the stadium, singing uh, derisory songs, and making reference to monkeys. Now, this is to do with a turn of phrase in Spain. Talking about dancing like a monkey just means dancing like a fool. Something along those lines. It doesn't have any particular offensive connotations. But somebody who should know better in the Spanish media um, attached that phrase to Vinicius Jr., which has the dangerous implication of potential overtones, undertones of something else. And that didn't help. What has then happened is that's been escalated. It's been continued on by Atletico Madrid fans who play that up in blatant racism with songs. Um, somebody had a monkey hand puppet, would you believe, with, an, uh, with a Real Madrid scarf around it. Um, disgusting behaviour. And this has been followed up just in the last day or so by the latest international match for Brazil. Again, a Brazilian player abuse. Um, essentially, it's Richarlison, formerly of Everton, now Spurs, who was abused by having a banana thrown at him. How very 1970s. Um, this was thrown by a supporter at a game taking place in Paris between Tunisia and Brazil. It is unclear at this stage who the supporter is, both in terms of his particular identity but also his nationality. Was he a Tunisian fan? Was he just a local Parisian? Who knows? But either way around, it really, really is a disgrace. The Brazilian FA have come out in damning condemnation of it and they are complaining about it, and justifiably so, as, of course, are um, Real Madrid about the Atletico incident. Two really unsavoury scenarios. There have been other minor incidents occurring elsewhere as well in the last few weeks. This really isn't going away yet, is it? Let's hope it does soon. Let's hope something is done soon because it's just as blatant as it has been over the last year or two and it's not getting any better. Anyway, on that sour note, we probably will need to wrap up. But thank you again for joining us. Next up will be a review of the Liverpool game, possibly one or two other new guests coming on. Uh, so stay tuned for that. That will be our next one. And let's hope we can manage to pull off a result on Roberto's debut for the club up at Anfield on Saturday. Until next time, stand or fall, up the Albion. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.